But as we come to chapter 27, we read tonight about the daughters of Zolophad, which has a lot of lessons for us, and I'm looking forward to getting into it with you tonight. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 27, verse 1, and read about these daughters of this man from the house of Joseph and what God would teach us through them and what we can learn for our lives here in 2021 in Jesus' name. Verse 1 reads like this. Then came the daughters of Zolophad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters, Mahala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the door of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in the company with Korah. But he died in his own sins, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he has no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, the daughters of Zolophad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then they shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give it to his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. In the book of Joshua, they divide the land of inheritance. And we begin to see this inheritance where the 12 tribes, and it also came up prior to this in chapter 26 on Tuesday night, where they would, in the census, the land when they got to it would be subdivided between the 12 tribes and the different families of the tribes. So every family would get an inheritance, and then it would be kept in the family and within the tribe. So they were the people of covenant. Remember, the people of covenant, God has promised them a literal physical land. So in their covenant, it's very physical, time, space, matter, very here and now. While, of course, eternal promises in their covenant, it was very physical. I mean, no one else had God ever say, we're in a covenant, I'm giving you these possessions, you're going to possess this land, and you're going to teach my word in this land, you'll be a light to the world, your descendants will bring Jesus the Messiah through you to the world, it's unique to Israel. And so this covenant is very special to them, contextually in the Old Testament this way, that they're going to get this land, God's going to displace the Amorites, all the Canaanites, he's going to remove them because it's his universe and he can give it to who he wants to and he's removing them for their wickedness, and he's going to give it to them. That all happens just a few years after this, as recorded in the book of Joshua, under the leading of Joshua. So now here as they're preparing to go into the land, they're in the, the plain of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River, looking at the promised land, and now the wheels are turning like, okay, in anticipation of the future, we're going to have to go in and conquer the land, but the land, the land will be divided, which, again, we see in the book of Joshua. Concerning these daughters of Zolophite, which speaks for itself in the text. We also find in the last chapter of Numbers 36 more information about the daughters of Zolophad, so it's worth knowing parenthetically as it relates to this text what goes on there. As they're still discussing inheritance and who gets what and how it works out, there arose the example like, well, what happens, though, if the daughters of Zolophad marry some Jewish guys from another tribe like, say, uh, Asher or, or Naphtali, and they have their possession... Now the land's going to pass to Asher and Naphtali when the land is supposed to stay within the tribe 
of the tribe itself, like the tribe of Judah or Benjamin, or in this case, the tribe of Manasseh. Like, how's that going to work? Because they could marry, and then does that get absorbed? And it just, what happens there? And so that gets broken down with stipulations that if the daughters of Zolophad or any other daughters, because this is applicable to all the women in the 12 tribes, if any of the other daughters marry under those circumstances, they give up the right to that land to marry outside the tribe. So if the daughters of Zolophad wanted to marry uh, this handsome guy from the tribe of Judah in the south, that's their choice. They have that freedom, but they, they renounce their rights to the inheritance in the land that came to them as a daughter of Zolophad, according to the tribe of Manasseh, under the the tribe of Joseph, the subdivision Manasseh, they relinquish that. So it's kind of like when the kids say, I don't care about your inheritance, mom and dad. I'm going to marry this person because I love them. Great. Okay, you can do that. You can marry Judah. But the inheritance is specifically for the tribe. And if you leave the tribe, then it, it leaves you. So you're, you're letting that go. And that's fine. And they can make their decision. Now, they're free to marry within the tribe. So, hey, daughter of Zolophite from the tribe of Manasseh, you can keep the property and keep the inheritance, but you need to marry within the tribe of Manasseh so it stays in the tribe and the inheritance works that way, which, by the way, is exactly what they did, okay? So that's how it played out for them, and it's worth noting because it relates to this because it's actually like a parenthetical part two to this part of the story, and we'll get it later on when we finish up numbers, but probably not topically. So with that background, these daughters of Zolophad are, they really stand out. They're very unique and interesting to us as we study the scriptures, and God commends them. So that's the first thing we see right away is God's like, hey, they, they're speaking truth. Yet again, something came up without precedent that they brought to Moses, and he wisely, as a spiritual leader, goes before the Father there at the tabernacle of meeting and says, okay, what, what do we do here? What's the situation? Remember the men that wanted to have Passover, but had touched a dead body? Back in Leviticus, same principle. So, okay, like, what, what do we do? Or the guy gathering sticks on the Sabbath, what do we do? So this is wisdom in Moses. He goes before the Lord, and the Lord speaks. And when you look at the daughters of Zolophad, there's actually a few different topics. And this week, thinking about it, and even previously when I was traveling in Florida, looking ahead when I was back east last week, thinking about the daughters of Zolophad and just their, their, their story, the details, there's actually different topics here. And I would have wanted to put them in just one kind of topic, if you will. But I think there's each of the topics that come from their life in this lesson are worth looking at individually. So tonight we're really looking at lessons from the daughters of Zolophad. We're looking at a couple different things that we learned from these five sisters who spoke up, God honored, and they teach us things that are very important and applicable for the follower of Jesus Christ this night. So it all begins where they come together, the five daughters, and obviously being sisters and all that, they thought, you know, our dad's dead. I mean, you can just picture this, right? Like, especially at my age, moving in on 60, when the elderly parents pass away, there's inheritances. In this case, they hadn't received it yet, but it was promised in the future. So, so dad's gone, mom's probably gone. Here we are, there's five of us. It's the five sisters. There's no brother to turn to or look to or whatever. There's an older sister. There's the oldest sister. And there's the youngest sister and the sisters in between. And they're sitting in their tent. They're amongst their tent people with their tent in the tribe of Manasseh facing the direction they face when they're all positioned in the 12 tribes according to their order, north, south, east, west. And they're thinking at dinner time, like, you know, I'm just thinking ahead, but like, seems to me like the neighbors right there, like our cousins, they're going to get the inheritance. The guys get the inheritance. Like, just because we're girls doesn't mean we shouldn't get the inheritance. Like, how would that work? I mean, God is good and God is light and he's gracious and merciful. Like, I mean, 
the God of the universe, I am that I am, like he didn't bring us out here to leave us without an inheritance, but there was no precedent for them. So these five daughters would have been, these five sisters would have been talking about a social circumstance and situation that affected their life and their future and the future of their children, their children's children, and even beyond. So they're probably just thinking like, when we get married, we should have an inheritance because dad's gone. And as they said to Moses, look, our dad was not the best dad in the world, but he wasn't part of the whole Abiram Dathan thing, but he did die and he died for his sins. But that's not on us. That, that's how it played out for dad, for pop. So here we are. And like, we're just thinking, how come our cousins, the boys that are annoying at every family gathering, how come they're going to get stuff in the land, but we don't get anything in the land? And we're thinking we should get equally in the land our fair share because our father was promised an inheritance. We should get that inheritance. So do you all understand the context now? Can you sort of picture this at a family dinner with the five sisters, the five aunts, and uh, if you will, their, their future, they're going to be the aunts probably and all that kind of stuff. This is our context. And so here they come. Can you imagine the five sisters? Like, okay, here we go. Scissor, rock, paper. Who's going to go to Moses and bring this up? Right? Like, I mean, Moses rules like 2.5 million people. And you're going to go before Moses. It's like, okay, you, the middle child. So the middle child's like, all right, here we go. The sisters show up at the tabernacle. So we're thinking. And, you know, if you read the context of the words, it, they, didn't, they didn't go, uh, they didn't try and, like, land. It wasn't a soft landing with your airplane coming in. It's a pretty firm landing. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family? Because he has no sons. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. You got to appreciate that. You know, I like that. If you ever have to say something that's you like, maybe they don't want to hear that you got to say, or you're a little nervous, you just go like, and you put it out there. And I, I love the context that we have the exact record of what they said. They just basically said, why should this go this way? Give us our inheritance. Let's just cut to the quick. Just no lawyers, nothing like that, just straight up. With Moses, five sisters, give us our inheritance. Trusting in the Lord, I'm sure, and in his goodness and his character. And this is our background. So from this boldness, this faith, this action of these five sisters collectively together set in motion the next few verses, fascinating things. The first thing that we see is in verse 6, the Lord spoke to Moses. So Moses is the leader. He's like, well, this is the latest thing going on. I got the five daughters of Zolophat out here, Lord. And, uh, you know, they're saying, give us the inheritance. And we haven't even conquered the land. I'm not even going to go into the land. It's a future thing that's not even. It's one of these things where, like, when you get older, you think, that's not going to be my problem. That's someone else's problem for when we're gone. But it's still my problem because it's kind of me. Lord, would you, I, don't, I mean, the, the five daughters of Zolophat, what do I do? And look what the Lord says. The daughters of Zolophad speak what is right. This is awesome. How cool is it to think? I mean, you're the girls. You put, you come together. You're like, man, we got it. Someone's got to stand up for the women in these tents. And uh, you go, you go before Moses, mighty Moses, the lawgiver. And you're like, okay, they, they put it, they put the, they put it out there on the, they put it out there, and then they like step aside, and Moses like, hold that thought. I'm going to the tabernacle. I'll come right back and tell you what the Lord says. The Lord says, hey, they speak what's right. You know, like you're kind of like. Can you just imagine the girls out front going like, man, this is it. We're all, we're all in. They're all in. They say, give us our inheritance to Moses, who talks with God face to face. Moses comes back out. He's going to say, hey, you speak what's right. Can you imagine what the, like, I mean, Moses did go see about the guy gathering sticks, and they, you know, they, they executed him, right, on the Sabbath. 
Like, you don't know what's going to happen when Moses comes out from the tabernacle if there's no precedent. But it would seem based that God is light and him is no darkness at all. That in his character, it's probably going to go good for the daughters. It seems reasonable. It seems fair, equitable, whatever. So they, you know, common sense works so well, as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say. Usually common sense is the right sense or what seems reasonably fair. It's not complicated. Justice in the universe. And so they had a, a good sense about it. And the Lord, the Lord advocates for them. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus is our advocate who always pleads our cause before the Father when we're accused that there in 1 John we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is our advocate. So often we think that God might be against us because we know our failures more than anyone else knows our failures. But God is for us. He didn't send his, his son to die on the cross to condemn us but to save us. And he knows our shortcomings, that our frame is but dust. And the Lord pities us, we're told in the Psalms. And he has compassion on us in a good way. And the Lord is for us. And we're told that in Romans 8. God isn't for us because we're really good people. He's for us because he loves us and shed his blood for us. And Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate. Whose righteousness we stand in. Whose spirit is guiding us in this journey. Through every high and low of the human experience on the good day and the bad day. He's our advocate. And the Father is the advocate here. And he says, what they speak is right. And I've been thinking about this. What they spoke is right. It's right because it's true. It's just. It's reasonable. It's also simple. Because we're told in the New Testament that God makes no distinction between male or female in the sense of they're standing before God. Now, the husband, of course, is a spiritual leader in the family, but he's not superior. Someone has to make the final decision, and there's a greater accountability for that. But we are told there's neither male nor female in Christ, nor rich nor poor, or free nor slave. So it'd be ridiculous to think that, that men are superior before God's throne over women in any way, shape, or form. And the Bible makes clear that this is not the case. We're distinct. We're masculine. Women are feminine. That's the way God designed us to be. Have you not read how he made them? Male and female, how he created them, with each with our purpose. And the beauty of a man is functioning the fullness of his purpose as a man, and the beauty of a woman is functioning the full purposes and design that God has for as a woman. And we find our fulfillment in life when we're men that are men of God, and we find our fulfillment in life when we're women that are women of God, according to the scriptures, not Caesar and the world. God is light, and him's no darkness at all. And what the women said here, God says they... It's good and right what they speak because it's true. And it's true because it would reflect God's heart and his character. What they said in, in asking, or actually it seems like they're demanding their inheritance. You know, you know, people used to say in the 70s, claim those promises. Like, you know, in a sense, they're really like, in a way they're doing like, give us our inheritance. They're, they're, they're basing that statement on their knowledge of God's character. Because he said when he revealed himself to Moses back in Exodus, the Lord is good and righteous and merciful, showing his mercy to thousands, right? And so they would have heard those things. And as they would have heard the word of God taught, the Ten Commandments, that's beautiful, the civil law giving, the religious law, and understanding the Passover lamb and the sacrifice, they would have known that God is good. And they went in there like, God is good. You're not going to punish us because of our dad. Give us our inheritance because we know in God's universe, equity, justice, and righteousness reigns. And God says what they say is true. And their, their position of what they were saying is based upon their understanding of God's character, his actions, and what he revealed about himself to them. 
Because God is light and him is no darkness at all. And their request or their claim or their command, if you will, going before Moses, his five sisters, is based upon God's character already revealed to them through his word and to all Israel prior to this time in their wilderness wandering. They are reflecting the heart of God and his character. They're reflecting an equal right, but this is noteworthy for our society, but not a special right. They are reflecting an equal right to their cousins, the male cousins, the boys next door, but not a special right. They're not asking for something more or special. They're not saying that their life is more important than anyone else's life. They're just saying their life is equal to those lives in value for the promises. That's important too. They're speaking truth. God says what they speak is right. And wouldn't it be nice if we could get from here to eternity, since we're going to give an account for every idle word before the throne of God, if we would just speak what's right? I mean, a lot of people have spoken in 2020, right? I mean, a lot. there's been a lot of voices and a lot of noise, a lot of promises, a lot of just static, louder than ever before, just screaming, yelling, canceling, woking, whatever, of voices of ideas, the marketplace of thought, ideologies, and these things. And it's very difficult. The body of Christ has been divided from what we've been through in the last year. And it would be really wise for us to make sure that our thinking, our worldview, is based upon what God says is right. That we would speak what is right. That's the lesson of the daughters of Zolophite. They are speaking something here that is right and God says it's right. So for me, I look at this as a minister of the gospel, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a husband, as a dad, as a grandfather, as a a son of a 90-year-old, that I want to make sure that whatever I put out there, whatever image, whatever thoughts, whatever ideas, whatever opinions, whatever perspectives I give, that God would say it is right. Amen? Because you don't want to put out there what's not right. There's a lot of people putting out there what's not right. See, this is why I quote Romans all the time, let God be true and every man a liar, because God is true and he's going to always be right. But men's opinions and all these things, they don't matter. And I've mentioned this, and if you've been around for a while, you know this. As I had to begin to or the, led, the Lord led me to begin to listen to all my messages for podcasts and radio, I realized if I just filtered things, I could shorten my messages and do a lot less editing. Because it doesn't matter what my opinions are. If you go listen to my studies from the early 2000s at Big Calvary on Thursday nights and Monday nights, man, I, I threw down some opinions. Everyone's people like, yeah, yeah, you tell Dan Rather and Hillary Clinton what you think of them. I'm like, who cares? What's that got to do with anything, you know? Who's Dan Rather and who's Hillary Clinton 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now? It doesn't matter. The opinions don't matter. Let God be true and every man a liar. Because kings and queens come and go and power brokers come and go. The wealth gets redistributed. What we want is the Lord to look in our life and say, you speak what's right. When we stand to give an account for every idle word, Jesus said, you spoke what's right. That is obtainable. See, we don't have to worry about like shouting down or yelling down something that we think is wrong. Because even it says of Jesus prophetically in the book of Isaiah, he's not going to shout in the streets. A bruised reed doesn't break and a smoking flux doesn't quench. Jesus doesn't shout down anybody. He doesn't have to. And if he wants to get a point across, he just knocks the soldiers down by just saying, I'm he, and they all fall down in the Gospel of John. We don't need to yell and scream our point. We can speak it and 
We often associate being spirit-filled with being loud and authoritative and like Greg Laurie when he's on all cylinders at a harvest crusade or whatever, which of course would be spirit-filled. But spirit-filled is a soft answer that turns away wrath. Because the Bible tells the church in the last days, not so much all that we're doing any different than what we're called to do from the Great Commission, but having done all, stand. We're called to stand. And so often standing is just standing for what you represent. Stand and represent what we believe. So I don't need to shout anybody down. And people can try and shout us down all they want. But we want the Lord to say we speak what's right. Whatever we stand for, our ideologies in the marketplace of thought, our worldview, what we speak, when we do speak, that we can speak deliberately and absolutely based upon simple, equitable, reasonable truths that God has revealed about himself and his character and his word. And if we do this, we learn greatly from the daughters of Zolpide. Because it is, it is very profound because God says they speak what's right. And if I could have one goal in 2021, it's to speak less and speak more of what's right. And that's a good goal for all of us, right? Did you write down some goals for 2021? I did in my journal. All kinds of different goals. And in evaluating 2020, I thought, and listen to many Bible studies. I've listened to all the Bible studies from last year. I usually listen to them the week after or before I teach. So, like, I would have wanted to listen to Tuesday night tonight, today, before I came here, just kind of like game film like an athlete or something. But uh, I wasn't able to do that. But we tried, to, we tried to less is more. Less is more. It doesn't mean nothing, but we, our voices matter, and we're here. We're called to stand, and we're, to, be, we're to, to fulfill the Great Commission. We're to be salt and light. All authority has been given to the church, to Jesus, to the church, so we're not trying to manufacture something new in 2021 as a follower of Christ. We're just simply going to keep doing what we're called to do like we were called to do in AD 61. That's what we're going to do. And that, revolves, that involves just standing and making sure that we're standing the truth. So when we take a stand, or as we say, do you want to die on that hill? Make sure the hill we're standing on is the right hill. Like I figure I'm going to get executed or shouted down or woke to another universe it's going to be on the right hill. Now, the one hill we really stood on last year is that we're going to sing in church no matter what. And I was willing and I'm still willing to go to jail for that. And it does affect my worship because it makes me want to be in here singing with you as soon as worship starts. Because I purpose in my heart in 2020, if I'm going to jail, I'm willing to go to jail for singing in a church. And all that I don't understand, mass, no mass, COVID, this, this, that, presidents, governors, I, I, I know this. I'm going to sing in church because I know we're called to sing in church no matter what. And I'll die on that hill. We watch a lot of people die on hills, so you just go like, well, that was your stand. That's what you said. But did, was that the right hill to die on? Like, could the Lord say they speak what's right as they're dying on that hill? Like, you look what people stand for in 2021 on this planet. You say, is that really, could the Lord say when they step into eternity that they spoke truth and that was the hill to die on? I want to die on the hill that speaks truth. Not based upon the opinions of men and people, but the Holy Spirit confirming it, giving it, and God applauding it when we step into eternity. We need to consider well our priorities and what we stand for, and I would say, what is your hill? Because that hill needs to be truth. Not people twisting truth or using truth against truth. See, that's something the church is a history of where like people take this truth and try to put it against that truth. So people are arguing like Calvinism versus Arminianism and once saved, always saved, or all these different things. Um, they're, they're, they're pitting two truths against each other. And as Spurgeon said, why would you make two friends enemies? Just let the truth be truth. And 
So where there's truth, stand on that hill and speak that truth. So if this is if there have been injustices, there have been. So speak on speak those truths. But the lives of the unborn do matter, as do the elderly. Every life is important, and that's truth. Jesus died for every soul that's ever been created in a womb. And that is the most defenseless human on the planet, is an unborn child. And that's truth. But so is evils that happen in the history of this nation. There's truth there, too. So we don't just want to lump this side or that side or this thing or that thing, but recognize this is true and that's true. They don't have to be opposed to each other. The truth is always the truth. And it doesn't contradict each other. Injustice is injustice, and truth is truth. So we don't have to get worked up about anything and everything. We just, what the daughters of Zolophite speak is, is right. Let's try and make that our goal as we go forward in 2021. That's the first lesson of the daughters of Zolophite. And it's not my opinion that it's right. It's not some news channel's opinion that it's right. It's God's opinion, which is the only one that matters. Because let God be true and every man a liar. The second thing we see about the daughters of Zolophite is it says, so they, they spoke what was right, and then it says, from the Lord. Again, this is the Lord speaking. So they, they went to Moses, hey, you know, this is, give us our inheritance. I mean, we are translating from Hebrew with a non-vowel language, but give us a possession among our father's brothers. I mean, evidently, there's not a please there in the Hebrew. <laughs> right? Okay, <laughs> just give us our inheritance. Like, let's cut to the quick. We could do coffee at the hipster coffee shop, but let's just skip the moon goat thing and go, hey, give us our inheritance. And then they're so bold. And look at the second thing we see about them. The Lord says to Moses, you shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. God says, you know, and God controls the estate, of course, right? <laughs> the earth is the Lord's, everything they're in it. God controls all the assets, the estates. He raises up kings. He brings down kings. He just, it's all there. God says, again, think of Jesus Christ being our advocate. But he says, you shall surely give them a possession of inheritance. They're going to get their inheritance. So they spoke what was right, and they were, to, they were promised their inheritance. They were promised by God to receive their inheritance equal to the male first cousins living next door in the tent right there. They were promised their inheritance. Now, inheritances are something interesting. Some of us have parents or grandparents or even great-grandparents who are very wise with money, and it, it still trickles down. For example... Uh, my sister-in-law, Sue's a doctor, and she married uh, a man named Miles. He's, he's, he's a sweet, gentle spirit. Miles is from the Procter & Gamble family. Because of that, and because our, grand, our children, so because Aunt Sue married into Miles's Procter & Gamble family, our children became uh, uh, available, able to access finances from the Procter & Gamble estate, that's not the actual quite name of it. So as they went to school at Calvary Chapel, they were able to receive tuition benefits from that family inheritance through Aunt Sue. See, that's on our, and that goes back long before Miles was born. This is, you know, back like the late 1800s, early 1900s, like, you know, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, those kind of people that the money's there. And so my children, 
have benefited from Aunt Sue, a George from Cardiff, marrying into this family, and it benefited them, and it still even has benefited them in college to this, in fact, to be honest, if any of them pursued master's degrees or doctorates, there would still be a benefit to some degree to help them from there. That's an earthly inheritance, right? Now, some of us have parents that maybe leave us inheritance, and we, we but all four of my parents and in-laws have been, they were very wise. But I spoke with someone last week in Colorado, and they told me how their parents left them nothing but debt. And it was, it really was, I'm so blessed by what my parents, the hard work of my mother and how she approached things, her work ethic, the hard work of my father as a Marine and just a, how he, as a school teacher, how he approached things. And they're, they're all, by the way, my father-in-law came from absolute poverty, not able to eat meat because they couldn't afford meat in Detroit growing up. And he built a life for him and his family when the train went by Cardiff, before Cardiff was even built. And he said, I want to raise my family here. And he bought a house for $17,000 with an ocean view in Cardiff, California in 1961. And he worked hard for everything he got. And my mother-in-law was one of the most amazing women I ever knew in my human experience. I could cry right now. So we're blessed. We didn't so much receive a spiritual, spiritual heritage from my father, my mother, or my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, although there was a strong Catholic faith renounced by my father-in-law, but then renewed to my father-in-law and a strong spiritual faith, Catholic faith from my mom the entire journey. A liberal Protestant faith from my dad, and I'm not quite sure about Pat, but she definitely loved the Lord when she stepped into eternity. But they all came from poverty. They were born in the 30s during Depression, and they worked hard to leave something for their children and their children's children. That's exactly what they did, but not everyone does that. That's a temporal, that's temporal anyways. And we, how many of you, you all know, don't you need to raise your hand, especially older people, you've watched siblings squander estates. You've watched them squander it before it even was an inheritance, and you've watched some of them squander it after it was an inheritance. And if you haven't, you probably will before it's all said and done. So we will understand that, right? Like, and if you don't, you will someday. Um, inheritance is a funny thing because this context is temporal. Give us the land. They, they're going to get land. They have real estate. There is real estate, and Joshua and the army's going to go in there, and those boys are going to get the job done, and then they're going to cast lots for Manasseh. They're going to divvy, divvy it up, and here comes the daughters of Zolophat. Here's your lots. Like when they, you know, they say Oklahoma Sooners because when they open up the West, the sooner you got there, the better lot you got. That's right. They're called Sooners. The sooner you got, the better the plot, right? And it's the same principle. Like, okay, so there you go. And like, this is the lot belongs to the Lord. So when they cast lots for the land, Manasseh got all this area, their tribe. And then as they were subdivided, then, okay, so now this region is for, okay, who's up next? Okay, the daughters of Zolophide, there's five of you, they cast a lot. So here's your acreage. This is your lot. You have this land, in a lot of the plots originally in the West were like six acres. You worked it for five years in Colorado. It became your property. Did you know that? I was out there in Parkway with Luke last week in Colorado and Castle Rock and Denver and the Calvary Chapel Aurora with Ed Taylor last week. It was awesome. But Luke was walking me through all the history, my son, of how, like, the, the prospectors, five years, you worked the land for five years, six acres, whatever, it became your land. That's what you did back in the day. So that's what these girls would have done. They would have got their land, and it was their land to develop it, to plow it, to produce food, stuff like from it. That was, that was their deal, and that was their inheritance. But again, it's temporal, but it would have been passed on. So they did marry their, they married within the Manasseh family, the land stayed in the family. They had children. They would have had children's children. And eventually they would have been gone. And great-grandchildren would talk about, you know, their, their great-grandmother Noah, who went before Moses and said, give me my inheritance. Like, yeah, oh, great-grandma Noah. 
Grandma Noah, Grandma, you know, Esther remembers Grandma Noah, great Grandma Noah, and said she was awesome and just a sweet lady. Like, that all would have happened. That would have happened. It's exactly the way it played out in the sequence that we understand of possessing in time, space, and matter. They got the property, and it was theirs, and it stayed in the family. Good for them. And again, we know that this goes on with people that we know and love and care about, and maybe you've been blessed, maybe not. And as I spoke with someone last week in Colorado, they said, you know, our parents didn't set anything aside for us, and we've been behind the eight ball forever, and I had to really encourage them because they've been serving the Lord unconditionally and uh, not really very well compensated for it, it would seem, and I know them very well, so I speak from that relationship to know that, and they're very discouraged in ministry, and I actually texted them this week, and I said, don't give up, man. The Lord's got a great calling on your life. You can, you, your inheritance is in heaven. Keep storing up treasures in heaven, like Jesus said, where your treasures, your heart will be. Don't worry. Just keep keep sowing the kingdom. Keep making those deposits, and even though, like, that's not going to, Jesus said, thieving moth can't break in and steal it, and a lot of inheritance, inheritances have been stolen by thieving moth, by time, and by time itself, the law of entropy and what it does to property, and by thieves, humanity, and what people do to one another and hurting each other and taking from one another. And I just encourage them, like, just don't grow weary in doing good. We got to keep doing good. And our confidence can't be in the inheritance that we might have for temporal or even a government that could provide for us temporarily. That can all change so fast. We understand that. And so what was promised to them here is their inheritance of the property. But when God makes a promise for time, we, we need to look past that a little bit because there's always a bigger picture. Because even to the Levites, God said, you have no inheritance because I'm your inheritance. And that would have been true for the daughters of Zolophite as it was for the sons of Judah or the, the daughters of Benjamin and all the other tribes. God is our inheritance. We were made by Christ and for Christ and in him we consist. And our life is found in Christ. He is our inheritance. He is our wealth. He is our everything. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the, the rock from which the water came, we're told in the New Testament. He's everything. He's got our back. And again, I've mentioned this quite a few times recently, where Peter and the guy say, we left everything for you. What's it get? And Jesus said, you got everything you need in this life, more than you'll ever need, and you've got a lot more coming in the, in the kingdom that come when you rule and reign with me over the 12, throne, over the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus described to them wealth in the next dimension that they couldn't even comprehend in this dimension. We have an inheritance. Romans 8 says that we are adopted into God's family when we give our life to Christ. And in that adoption, now some of you have adopted. I can look around this room and I know people here who have adopted children. I don't know your will. I don't know your trust and I don't know your state. So I don't really know how you would think. But I know how I would think because I have a will and a trust and an estate because of the, the wisdom of my forefathers. But I, if I adopted a child, at least in my household, how I see the world, to show the full affection of that child and, and the equality of that child, that child would be equal heir to my other four children in our estate. That's exactly what I would do. I mean, now maybe there's a reason someone maybe wouldn't do that. So I don't know, because I haven't walked in those shoes. But I'm just saying for me, I know if we ever adopted, we would immediately give that child the exact same benefits of Hannah, Leah, Timothy, and Luke, because that's how we would recognize them as being fully our child. That's how we would approach that. I'm sure I speak for my wife on this one as well. And we would have that equality of the estate and the inheritance, however it plays out, whenever it plays out. Well, we're told in Romans chapter 8, in Jesus' name, that we're joint heirs with Christ. And now because we're, we're joint heirs, we call God the Father, Abba Father, personal. It's personal. It's, it's not a distant, it's, it's the daddy. It's dad. Dad, you know, it's like, you know, you know, when your kids, when you get older, your kids are adults are like, well, you know how dad is. 
<laughs> well, fortunately, Abba Father is not like Dad, where they say, you know, Dad is in our family, but Dad is personal. When you talk about Dad, it's, it's personal. We're able to call God who made the universe, our Heavenly Father, Dad. Romans 8, through faith in Jesus Christ. Abba, Father. And we're told that we're adopted into the family. So we give our life to Christ. We pass from death to life. We're born again. And now we call God Abba, Father. He's like, no, I want you to know, like, hey, you're... And he says, and to prove this to us, he takes his son, Jesus Christ, who's the heir of all things. We're told that, right? Jesus is the heir of all things. By whom, through whom are all things. There's nothing made that wasn't made through him. And all things are made by him and for him. And it's all for him. The whole universe, as we understand it, is belongs to Jesus. He's the heir of all things. He's the center of the universe. So the father takes Jesus and says, my son is the heir of all things, and I've made you co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So no matter who you are, what language, what status in society, in any country of the world, at any timeline that you could have lived in up to this day in church age, and even faith of the Old Testament looking forward, we, can, we pass from poverty to wealth the moment we give our life to Christ eternal wealth because we may have earthly parents that don't really set things up well and we might even need the earthly parents because of the way it just went where we lived our society the governments around us we could not set our children up well either but the one thing that no one can ever take from us is the legacy of faith so anyways that's what we really want to give our children in the first place because a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children but the real inheritance that we leave is our faith in Jesus Christ to trust in the Lord no matter what so even if you could leave houses and property, and maybe your parents would and you would want to, still the greatest legacy you can leave your children is the legacy of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the legacy of faith. A righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and nothing can bring more joy to see your grandkids walking with Jesus. And if they choose not to, when they get a little bit older, that's your choice. It wouldn't be because you didn't set them up to do so. So now coming back to Romans 8, we're told, and I've been mentioning this in recent studies, but we're digging a little deeper here, that we are joint heirs with Christ. Now, how do we even understand that? Like, how do we understand what that means? I don't fully understand what that means to say when, when the Father and the Holy Spirit say that we're joint heirs with Christ, that when, when we step into eternity and the, and the will is written or the trust is written or, or you get the document saying, hey, it's all been figured out. Because that's what happens. You know, a law firm was put in charge of managing it and they'll send something out to all the uh, beneficiaries and they'll say, okay, so here's the trust. Here's, here's what, you know, grandpa's net worth was or whatever. And here's the liabilities. And da -da, here's the bottom line. Sign here. You're not going to contend. And then a few months later, you might get a check. And it was equally, not equally distributed. It could have been very variable distributed. But your share comes. And that's, that's how it works. How can we wrap our minds around stepping into eternity? Where Abba Father says, you, you believe my promises. You believe my character. You trusted in me. And now you receive the estate. Like, how do we even understand that, what that means? Like, how do we really understand that we're joint heirs with Christ? And it's going to take all eternity for us to understand the riches and the glory of his goodness as joint heirs with Christ. It's, it's, it's amazing. I, I don't... I can just put it before us. As the father promised the daughters of Zolophad, you shall surely give a possession and inheritance among the father's brothers because the inheritance of their father to pass to them. So too we can say tonight in Jesus Christ, all of us through faith in Jesus Christ, you will surely give them the inheritance I promised them through my son for all eternity. Now, so when you get upset with any noise out there tomorrow, don't. Because, you know, you can print copies of the trust and everything and give it to your kids so everyone has a copy, they know what to expect. Man, we've got the word of God for all of us here and this is what we get to expect. 
all those blessings in Christ for all eternity. You're going to thank me in eternity. You're going to thank me when I encourage you to forgive, let it go, to humble yourself, and praise his name. Because you're, that trust is going to be opened up, and whatever that payday is between you and the Lord, there's an equality to it, being joint heirs with Christ, and there's a distinction to it based upon our faithfulness as well. But there's an equality to it. And it's, we can't, we have to have faith for this, WG. We have to have faith. I can't describe it to you. I can't break it down like property or stocks or things like that. I'm just telling you, join me in having faith that there's a great wealth of reward for us in eternity as joint heirs with Christ because the Father, who there's no shadow of turning of light, has promised it to us. Now the last thing. It says there, this, if that's not enough, the third lesson we see now is down here in verse 11 where it says, and it shall be a, to the children of Israel a statute of judgment just as the Lord commanded Moses. Wait, are you telling me that these three sisters going to the tabernacle, going before Moses saying, give us our inheritance, becomes a statute? It becomes a judgment? Are you telling me that their faith and their conviction and their courage becomes a law in the law of God? Oh, amen. I am telling you that. That not only do they speak what's right, not only do they promise the possession of the promise of the inheritance temporal, which looks toward the future, but God says there is forever a statute and a law in my law. So for the next 1,500 years, the next 15 centuries, when you have this situation arise where there's daughters and no sons, this is the reference point of law, like a constitution that guides the decision-making promise, the decision-making processes of the judges of my people and how to handle and resolve these things. This is an amendment. This is an amendment to the constitution of God's word. God gave an amendment based upon the daughters of Zolophod to guide and govern the nation of Israel until Christ came to be the defender of the defenseless, the women, the daughters, without the sons whose fathers have passed away. Isn't that incredible? Like, that's so beautiful to me that their faith becomes a legacy. This one day, like, who knows how many, what, what led to this day, but they all agreed in unity to go to Moses and say, give us the inheritance. And that faith and that unity and that courage Re, not redefined, but expanded God's law to benefit women and daughters for the next 1,500 years in God's law under the Mosaic Covenant. And not only that, it's there as a principle to guide believers in Christ from here to eternity because all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for instruction. You think of people who made a stand on one day just one day for what's right. Rosa Parks. No, we're not, we're not giving up our seat. We're in the back of the bus. Just a woman saying, no, that's not, an African-American woman saying, that's not, that's not, no, that's just not right. That's not the heart of God, and someone has to make a stand, and we're making it today. I'm glad they still got that bus. Can you imagine how hard that would have been? A black woman in the South saying, I'm not giving up my seat on this bus because that's wrong. And someone has to stand for what's right. How about the guy in Tiananmen Square when the tanks were coming? Remember that? We all have that image of you baby boomers just standing there like, we, don't, we never know who he is, right? They slaughtered thousands of people in Tiananmen Square. 
But that one guy that stood in front of the tank, for what? Freedom of speech. Because God allows freedom of speech. Because the marketplace of thought is very important to compare thoughts like Paul on Mars Hill. We'll never know who that guy was. Or when the plane crashed, when Reagan was president, uh, leaving Washington National and went in the ice on Christmas Eve, and that one guy five times from the water of the Potomac lifted up someone to the helicopter out of the icy water and saved their lives, and he sank, and we never knew who he was. Saved five lives before giving up his. See, we're all going to have a legacy in eternity. We're all going to leave a lasting legacy of what our life is really about. And so I close tonight with this thought, as there's so much noise and so much shouting down and so much this is right, this is right, this is wrong, this is wrong, and all this stuff, I want to bring us back to the dollars of Zolophad, their third lesson. Let's leave a legacy that goes beyond our life and our timeline. Let's leave a legacy that what the mark of our life really was faith in Jesus and obedience to the word and death to self and love of others and willing to take a stand for those who maybe are defenseless or couldn't take a stand or needed someone to be their advocate because Jesus is the advocate. There's so much hostility and anger building and we're told in the last days that the love of many will grow cold and as we're maybe in the beginning of the end or just another ebb and flow of the human experience we are definitely on the cusp of something that's very difficult for the entire planet and we're still the church we still have the power of the holy spirit to do everything he's called god's called us to do we still have jesus as lord with his authority and we still have the great commission and this can be our most glorious hour as we lose our lives in him. And as truly like the daughters of Zolophad, we speak truth. We stay focused on the promises that are beyond this dimension. And we leave that legacy that says there was a woman of faith. There was a man of faith. There's someone like Paul who said did not love their life but was faithful to the end, and they're innocent of the blood of all men. I'm not sure what God's going to call us to stand for and stand with, but truth is always truth. It will always be truth, and a lie will always be a lie. And God is light, and him is no darkness at all. So let's be simple and critical in our thinking and just keep our wits and have some courage come before God, the little mojo, like the daughters of Zolophide, and know his character, believe his character, and move triumphantly in his character with all of his promises, and say, you know, there's a day I'm gone, and when I'm gone, it's, maybe they do get the land, or the house, or something, but when I'm gone, I, I, I want, I want if they find some record of me 200 years from now, there, that was a woman of faith who made a difference for the right things. That was a man of faith who made a difference for the right things. And that's who we want to be. And we, we can't get thrown off by that. And the daughters of Zolophide, God bless them. This one day still impacts. God kept it in his word. Think how many things aren't in his word from the wilderness wandering that he didn't keep. This is in his word for us. So may we take heart and be encouraged. What an amazing story.